This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today, this hour, a global asparagopsis production company has struck a deal with a large Australian feedlot to supply it with seaweed to help reduce its methane emissions. You'll learn more about that after half past 12 today. Also, very shortly, a grain cleaning and drying company on the south coast of the state has never been busier, and that is because it has been a... Well, a pretty rain-delayed harvest in that part of Western Australia. You'll learn more about that really shortly here on the Country Hour. It is six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia. And one of the biggest players in the WA fertiliser market says it's keen to reflect any cost reductions in fertiliser prices just to ensure farmers make good economic decisions and buy exactly what they need for this year's season. Ben Sudlow is the Sales Strategy and Reliability Manager at CSBP in Quinana, just 40 kilometres south of Perth. Ben, after two cracking seasons back-to-back, what level of demand for fertiliser are you expecting in the lead-up to this season? I look up. Well, the way we look at it is you take you've taken off 50 million tons of grain over two years um which in in not that long ago that was a that would take four years to produce nearly four years to produce that sort of grain and there are the nutrient removal levels um, that come off sort of 50 million ton of grain is um, is colossal yeah so the expectation is that that's got to be replaced at some point in time and the demand for fertiliser on the back of that, notwithstanding it's got to be a cost equation for the growers against their yield, is expected to be very high. I guess they're trying to balance that too because, I mean, two fabulous seasons back-to-back like that, but, you know, increasing costs of just about everything. I mean, you know, fertiliser in recent times, but interest rates, uh, wages, everything, fuel, everything. So there might be some sort of cutting back on on the plantings this season. What are you hearing around that sort of um, approach to the season ahead? Yeah, I mean, look, every farmer's got to make their own determination about what they uh, you know what they're going to do on their own property and make their own cost equation about what they put into crop and 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 not. Um, I think one thing on the fertilizer side though is that you know the prices in general cost the major nutrients MP and K are down about twenty five to thirty percent off their highs. So the equation on terms of the fertilizer, it's not what it might have been three four years ago, but the cost equation on the fertiliser is vastly better than what it was uh, 11, 12 months ago. So those prices, because we're seeing that sort of drop off in prices on the overseas market, is that mm. starting to come into the domestic market also? Yeah, so it is. Uh, maybe you're thinking about, you know, we, we've, we bought, we've started importing product from probably July in 22 for this year. We're bringing shipments in pretty continually and as um, those have come in we've pricing those and reflecting the the changing costs into into the into the marketplace but phosphates last year they rose 260 US dollars a ton they've probably fallen about 150 US since then urea's up 400 US last year and and we saw weekly swings last year of 100 US a ton you know they've fallen now 300 US dollars a ton but not a lot of nitrogen comes in the market early. A lot of the phosphates, and I think the key thing for the local market is that 
or most straight phosphates that go on pasture or ammonium phosphate, your cropping compounds. Most of those are imported now. Will be either in sheds in WA, they'll be on the water heading here, will be costed. And, you know, that, that, those costs are now reflected in the, in the sell prices that we're seeing in the market today. So when you sort of made some of those purchases, as you said, back in July, that would have been a much higher price than sort of today's prices. So those stocks that you've got in store there that you bought at those higher prices, are they being sold for the current price reflective of the overseas market here domestically? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lag between, you know, I, I guess it only, it only becomes real, the, the offshore prices, and the moment we buy some and all the market buys some, and we and all our competitors now uh, have pretty much priced in, and that reflects a competitive market where, you know, anyone, uh, the, the market sets a selling price, and, you know, particularly with the cropping compounds, they're pretty reflective now on what the average costs in from all across the market that those people have bought various ships in over the last two months, three months, or six months. So when the price moves overseas, as it is at the moment, that downward pressure, it takes a, a bit of time to flow through domestically, but when it goes up overseas, it's pretty immediate, the price hike domestically. Is that how it works? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily at all. Uh, it, 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 look, Belinda, I think your, um, the assumption is that you know prices flow quickly up and flow quickly down. I mean, it goes back to the point with which you buy a shipment or someone in the market buys a shipment. And if you buy a shipment, I um, mean, you can reflect that in the market. One thing that's probably key in here too, if you think about the fertilizer suppliers is that we don't want high prices. We would like the, we, we like uh, to put volume through the, the business. And what that means is if we can have our costs low, the farmers buy volume. You know, we've seen some demand destruction um, globally on particularly products like potash. And as prices come off, we want to reflect those cost reductions so that farmers can make good economic decisions to put uh, what they need on to grow the crop and hopefully put more on. Some analysts are saying that there's you know, currently about a, a $250 per tonne difference between overseas prices and what Australian farmers are paying for fertiliser, you know, if we look at at an average for this month, say, uh, how accurate do you think that is? Oh, I don't know, Belinda, honestly, I I don't know. Uh, Again, it goes back to the the point with which it's only relevant to the day that uh, you buy a shipment and you can reflect that in your local prices. And yes, there's a lag on the up and there's a lag on the down. It's as simple as that. Did a lot of fertiliser company sort of purchase fertilizer at some of those peak price points and, and now have a lot of stock that that needs to be offloaded because some farmers I've been speaking to in the lead up to talking to you today sort of say that you know at the moment it's a case of who's going to fold first they know you've got the stocks and they're kind of waiting for that flow through from the overseas prices to be reflected here domestically what do, what do you make of that assessment Oh, look, I think in, in nitrogen, there's a lot more nitrogen to come into the market later and, you know, they'll reflect the price of the time. And look, frankly, the prices might bounce back up again. You, you don't know. And uh, but in terms of phosphates, I think it's, and, and largely, you know, a vast amount of the potash in the market here is those are reflecting a lot of product that's been bought in. It's, it's all mostly here. So that, you know, if the price moves up or down later, it's almost a, to some extent academic because... There's no more coming into. There's going to be very little more coming into the West Australian market. Why is that? Because we've got the demand covered 
we, we believe, and this is across the market, we've made, we're making expectations now about what the demand's going to be. We think it'll be large. We're also in a position now where our commitments are very low. You know, farmers are thinking, you know, I'm busy harvesting, I'm worrying about grain, I've gone on holidays, and prices are falling. So there's not a necessarily impetus to buy fertilisers, but at some point in time, they need to start ordering and collecting fertiliser and plan to um, finalise um, what they need because at the end of the day, we've, we're sitting down thinking, what are we going to make? Are we going to What are we going to manufacture? And we always look at our last phosphate vessel of the year and saying, are we going to bring it in? Are we not? And how much will it be? And or uh, what products will be on it? And with low commitments, it's hard to to know to what extent we, we pull that trigger. On the Country Hour, it is 14 past 12. And this afternoon, talking fertiliser supplies and prices with Ben Sudlow. He's the Sales Strategy and Reliability Manager at CSBP Quinana. It's one of the biggest fertiliser companies in the state, certainly the biggest by volume. And you can be part of the conversation too. The text is 0448 922604. I wonder what are your fertiliser requirements for this season, have you been able to lock in a good price that reflects some of the pricing that we're now seeing on the overseas market? The text 0448922604. Now, Ben, how many farmers on your books would have already locked in some of their fertiliser needs, have it on the farm as sort of a risk management strategy concerned that prices could have even gone higher this year? Would that be the case for most farmers? Oh, look, I think the risk is not now, and particularly cropping compounds, the risk is not about, um, it, the risk is about uh, ordering it, getting it planned, getting it in trucks um, and getting it out to farm ready for seeding. It, the, the clock is ticking for the start of seeding. There's a lot of product here. There's a lot of product in fertiliser company sheds. There's a real risk of pr- compression um, at the crunch when uh, everyone wants it. And I, I've likened a little bit to 2020, the COVID year. In 2020, in February and early March, there wasn't a lot of fertiliser collections. It was only when the pandemic hit that uh, it went crazy. And it, it was it was sort of okay then because the roads were clear, the store was here, and the trucks would come in quite smoothly in and out. The difference now is that there's much greater tightness on the uh, on the trucking capacity and, and availability of truckies. The volume in general is higher, so there's more volume to move out to the market. And in general, commitments are low. So a lot of the fertiliser companies are sitting, sitting thinking, have I got enough or have I got too much? Um, is it in the right place? Am I manufacturing the right product? Am I Have I bought in the right product now? So um, it's time for really uh, to be turning on um, Compression, um, what can we do to make sure that people aren't scratching to looking for appointment uh, book space, looking for truckies um, and looking for trucks to to meet the seating requirement? Ben, how are you reading the situation overseas, the supply chain uh, situation, which has been disrupted for so many different industries over the last couple of years? And in terms of pricing for fertiliser, say, over the next six to 12 months, how are you reading it? Look, I mean, you never. I mean, twelve months ago, you know, prices were gen, generally going up, and it went crazy on the moment that Russia went into Ukraine. I think the difference now is that there's a couple of key elements of the last twelve months which are different now than they were twelve months ago. The Russia-Ukraine conflict, which while still on, still going, has the, the fertilizer world has sort of readjusted around that. Different trade flows are occurring, and the volume of product is just going to different markets. 
you know, the Russian product, which was where's that going to go to, is now flowing into markets where they otherwise don't care about Ukraine. It's going to China, India, Brazil, for example. So the, the supply is adequate. And it was nervousness supply 12 months ago that saw the prices jack up. Probably second big one, China, a big exporter of fertiliser, but they also have will bring restrictions on exports to the extent that they want to protect fertiliser for their own market, their own domestic market. And when, when prices have come off, though, their concerns around uh, fertiliser price and availability becomes less, and they have, and have now, at least currently, and again, this could change uh, overnight, uh, exporting again, and a lot of the China, Chinese export companies are managing better some of the barriers that were put in place by the, gov- the Chinese government um, around permit systems waiting for um, exporting a fertiliser. So there's still and a finally, little bit more downward pressure you see there then? Um, I think the other one, Belinda, well, I think that's what's caused what's brought us down. The final one probably is worth, is worth mentioning is sanctions. You know, the sanction regimes that came initially, those have softened in a lot of markets. And with the sanctions and tariff regimes that are coming from various countries, they're more worried about making sure that they can get fertiliser into their country. So the trade flows into places like US and even more recently into into, um, Europe um, uh, have seen carve-outs for fertiliser where sanctions or tariffs are not not like they are even in Australia. So at the moment, uh, nutrient prices have fallen. And what we've probably seen in recent months is they typically are now starting to level off. Nitrogen prices have dropped and are level off in the last couple of weeks. Phosphate prices have tapered off and potash prices have tapered off in, in most markets in the recent months. But does that mean it's not going to go dramatically up or down beyond here? You know, we don't know, of course. No, of course, that, that's difficult. I mean, it's still that, that volatility, especially with that uh, Russia-Ukraine situation still ongoing. Yeah. Just before I let you go, Ben, the, the Greens are calling for improved transparency in the fertiliser pricing. Senator Peter Wish-Wilson is going to talk to the Agriculture Minister about the possibility of setting up public indexes that could track the price of fertiliser on the domestic market. Would you be a, a supportive CSBP supporter move like that? Look, I remember, Belinda, I'm not uh, probably at liberty to make too many comments, but I, I do recall there was a, a parliamentary inquiry back in 2008-9 same thing the ACCC got involved they did their uh, work on it and as I recall and I haven't read that for a long time they were comfortable for which the fertilizer prices did reflect that of the offshore markets but are they do they reflect it instantaneously instantaneously no they they don't and they can't and they never will because people we buy ships as we all do in you know 35,000 ton tranches and we may not always buy all those on the bottom of the market. And so, hopefully we don't buy them at the top of the market either. <laughs> so that transparency in fertiliser pricing in Australia is just not possible? Well, I think it's, it's only transparent. Well, Belinda, I don't, I don't really know. I, I, I'm, not, that's, I'm, not really, I'm not really across the detail of that to make any comment, to be honest. All right. Well, look, it's really great to get your insights and analysis. I really appreciate your time here on The Country Hour, Ben. Okay. Thanks, Belinda. Ben Sudlow, he's the Sales Strategy and Reliability Manager at CSBP here in WA in Quinana. It is 20 past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. 
An update from the newsroom shortly, then checking weather conditions around the state. Yesterday, the Bureau of Meteorology just saying that there's a chance of this cyclone uh, developing. So really keen to get an update on that situation for you. Um, clearly, that's the last thing the communities in those flooded areas would be, you know, looking for at this point anyway, as they're trying to just get on top of the destruction that's been caused by XTC Alley. 21 past 12 and heading off to the state's south coast now, where an Esperance grain cleaning and drying company has never been busier following a rain-delayed harvest resulting in high moisture levels. Neil Wandel is the co-owner of Esperance Quality Grains. He says his machines and his staff have been working around the clock. Oh, it's been incredible what we've had. We started, I think, about the 10th of October and uh, our dryers started running around the clock on about the 15th and I think we've stopped for two nights since then, seven days a week. Just how many tonnes of grain have you been cleaning and, and drying? Uh, we normally, between the both of them, we can do sort of between 1,500 and 1,800 tonne a day. I think we've received about 120,000 tonnes so far up to this stage. How long are you expecting it'll take to get through it all? Oh, it's been quite an incredible year because we had three weeks when the moisture never came down. Everyone just harvested wet grain. Hopefully we'll be finished by the end of March, hopefully. So has that been the predominant issue? Is it just the, the amount of moisture in the grain that you've been seeing? Oh, the moisture for two weeks never came below 14% and people, the quality was still there. So people just harvested and, and bagged a lot or put it in heaps on the ground and... On top of that, I'd say probably 15% of our work we've had to clean and dry because the ergot's been really bad and the snails have been really bad with the snow, so it's just been very hectic, actually. This business, I understand, is about 20 years old. How does this year compare to the other years? Oh, it'll end up being uh, double our best ever year, the way it looks. Double your best ever year, wow. Double our best ever tonnage, I think. That's the way it's going. We, we don't know where the end's going to be. You must be a, a tired man. Oh, no, some of the, some of the night shift people are... Uh, you know, one man's been six o'clock in the evening till six in the morning now, six days a week since October. Um, and, uh, we're, but he's taking a month off in February, so he'll get over it. So once the grain's processed here, where does it go then? Oh, we just deliver it back to CBH, straight across the road. We've had a real issue getting the snails out. Small snails, they're the same size as canola. But generally, um, the ergot, we can usually get out pretty easily. You tell me about the drying facilities that you've got here. Just what's the capacity of them? How many tonnes can they dry, say, every day or, or every hour? Uh, if we're doing big run lines uh, and the, to pull two, two and a half percent moisture out, they do about 70 tonne an hour. But we're burning natural gas to do that. You guys also are not just cleaning and drying grain, you also export things like chickpeas and lentils, field peas here. Are you operating, is that still going at the moment as well? Yeah, well, we weren't planning to do it because we were so busy, but we still managed to, to pop. But we have a ship comes every month and we've been doing about 100 to 120 boxes every month, which is 2,500 tonne of legumes every month as well.
Yep, he's working around the clock. Neil Wandel is the co-owner of Esperance Quality Grains and he was speaking to Hayden Smith. 25 past 12 on the Country Hour and a wheat belt honey producer has welcomed a decision by a group of New Zealand companies to drop legal action over the use of the term manuka in Australian bee products. Now, Kiwi producers have been pushing for exclusive rights to the term since 2016, arguing that the product is native to New Zealand. But they've since dropped a landmark or trademark dispute in Europe over the use of the term. Damien Green plants native leptospermum trees in Western Australia to generate manuka honey, which can sell for as much as sort of $500 a kilo overseas. He says the recent development is a win for the Australian industry. This has been a long and protracted legal case that's, I think it's gone on for about six years and um, they've been to the High Court, they've done everything, they've lost in the High Court due to the similarities the magistrate pointed out with Champagne in France where we have to call it sparkling wine if it doesn't come from the region of Champagne. And he said, Manuka's not like that because Manuka's not a region, it's a plant. And yes, it is native to New Zealand and yes, it is native to Australia. So it was actually, Manuka was first harvested in Australia 30 years before bees were introduced to New Zealand. So is it a no-brainer for you that they make, they just make this decision to you know, allow Australian producers to call it Manuka honey and did it sort of make you rack your brains a bit as to why it wasn't before? Yeah, to a certain extent, but they, they wanted to protect the monopoly on it all and the intellectual property and not forgetting that the, it was the Maoris that started this industry really by harvesting native Manuka in New Zealand. Now this, we have plantations, but... Our native stuff is fairly sparse in Australia, so we select the best trees and then we get the seeds off them to grow plantations. So to their credit, they really did kick the industry off and gave it a high profile. And they all sort of set a premium price on the product, which Australians, I don't think, would have done. And you only have to look at other uh, quality active honeys like Jarrah, which is so cheap by comparison. It's sold way too cheap, I believe. So, yeah, no, great result for the industry and it gets people talking about active honey once more, which is fantastic for us. And I think it's uh, the right decision's been made because with those legal cases, the uh, when they go on for so long, the only people that make money out of it is the legal teams. And I think they just came to realise that. So... Yeah, they've all parties sort of just shook hands and walked away. Is it good for Australian producers on the global stage in terms of their exports and the, the you know the international reputation that you might have? Absolutely, because a lot of the the main market in Asia, Japan and China, predominantly, they believe that New Zealand has the best. Well, they don't, and we actually have another species of Leptospermum. The manuka is called Leptospermum scoparium, and we've got another species which is only one chromosome different to the scoparium but it is actually three times stronger so we grow that in WA because it's three times stronger antimicrobial properties and also it's endemic to Western Australia so it thrives here. How is the price of manuka honey generally at the moment? It's dropped off a lot from what it was three years ago it's down probably 30 or 40 percent but I think the volumes have done that too because there's more available and the old supply and demand So the more that's available, the cheaper the commodity, you know, in anything really. 
Manuka Honey producer Damien Green catching up with Sam McManus. It is 29 past 12 and just waiting for someone from the newsroom to come in and give us an update. And then after that, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, checking weather conditions around the state. And then more on this global asparagopsis production company that struck a deal with a really big um, feedlot in southern New South Wales to supply it with seaweed. And they've done that to try and reduce the methane emissions coming out of that feedlot, which is around about 40,000 head of cattle. That's coming up shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, Brianna Shepherd is here. What's happening in the news today, Brianna? Hello. Emergency services are responding to an emergency at Perth's Jandicott Airport. Crews were called to the General Aviation Airport at around half past 11, although it's unknown exactly what happened. Initial reports suggest the pilot of the aircraft is not injured. The state government is urging flood victims in the Kimberley to be vigilant after a new phishing scam has emerged targeting vulnerable people with fake offers for financial relief via social media. Consumer Protection has advised financial support through legitimate agencies are never offered via social sites. And seven people have died in more mass shootings in the US state of California. Police say a 67-year-old man has been arrested following two related shootings at a mushroom farm and a trucking firm south of South San Francisco. He comes a day after 11 people were killed when a man opened fire inside a dance hall near Los Angeles during Lunar New Year celebrations. More news on the hour. Brenda, thank you very much for that update. It is half past 12. Uh, just before one today, it's off to Muche again today. Yesterday, the cattle were being sold. Today, the sheep market is underway and Terry Birkin will go through the yarding and the prices for you. In a moment, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. to one on the country hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. It is off to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Joey Rawson is on deck. And Joey, yesterday we were talking about the possibility of a cyclone forming uh, off the coast of WA, northern parts of WA. So maybe we can start there. I'll take a look at this, this afternoon and then in the lead up to that just to sort of get an idea of whether that's actually going to happen or not. What have you got? Yeah, no, it's a really good point, Belinda. We've got like a, a tropical low that is northwest of Darwin. And yesterday I um, checked out what the ratings were, so how much risk um, that we saw in that uh, system turning into a tropical cyclone. And we were rating it um, a pretty good chance Thursday uh, and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. So we had our ratings up at a higher chance of this 
uh, tropical low was going to turn into a tropical cyclone by the weekend. But today, all the model gardens, or most of the model gardens, has really downgraded that risk. So um, in regards to uh, whether it's going to develop now on the current guidance we've got, it's looking more unlikely. However, we're going to continue to monitor that. So if we just uh, look at um, what this system is going to do, we've got the low just northwest of Darwin it's going to track in a west-southwest direction over the next few days and then when we get to Friday it's uh, potentially going to recurve towards that basically East Pilbara coast and with our uh, current modelling um, it's just going to be a tropical low um, as it gets near the coast and then tracks through basically the eastern parts of the Pilbara. So although at this stage it um, is most likely not going to get to that tropical cyclone strength, it still will bring, bring a fair bit of rain with it. So um, the area which we're most concerned about is um, when it does move through that east uh, Pilbara area and, and southwest Kimberley area. And the rainfall figures that we've got at the current moment um, could peak out around that sort of 100 to 150 millimetres. But then if we look at um, where that is possibly falling, um, we're, we're most concerned about the Fitzroy catchment. Um, but it looks like it's uh, just on the fringe of that, so just remaining to the southwest of that. And most of the rainfall will be basically in the eastern part of the Pilbara as it starts uh, tracking towards the southeast and, and the southeast states. So at this stage, uh, Belinda, it's uh, looking better news than what we had yesterday, for sure. Yeah, well, that is really good to hear. Well, at this stage anyway, that those communities already flooded and trying to clean up and repair everything are going to be spared from that rain. It's probably the last thing they need at this point. Uh, let's move into the Southwest Land Division then, Joey. How's it looking this afternoon and for the rest of the week? Yeah, so the Southwest Land Division is looking pretty good. We do have a, a trough that uh, is basically inland, so we're going to have some thunderstorms develop uh, basically on and east of that trough. So, you know, part of the uh, Gascoigne and, and part of uh, the, the eastern parts of the central wheat belt into the goldfields. Not expecting a lot of rain out of that, but if we do get thunderstorms, uh, especially through the southern parts, um, there could be some lightning that may cause some problems as far as fire ignitions. Um, however, that will continue moving out, basically slowly out to the east over the next few days. And um, for tomorrow and for Thursday, it's a similar story, just those showers and thunderstorms stretching from the gas going through the goldfields, basically near to the southeast coast. And it doesn't clear out until we get to Friday where we get a, a front that moves over the southwest. That front will bring some showers to the southwest, not a lot in it, uh, but it will push the trough further to the east and take all uh, the weather with it. And that's the front that's causing the problem with the tropical low that's it's actually grabbing it and, and pulling it towards the coast. Um, certainly cooler conditions from Friday and Saturday. Basically, most of the southwest land division will have uh, no, no rainfall at all apart from the Eucla coast. And then the warnings this afternoon, anything on the list? Um, you probably guess that there's a fair bit on the list. We've got marine wind warnings um, through many parts of the coast. So um, basically on the west coast from Coral Bay down to the Lewin coast, um, we've got a wind warning for the Eucla coast and also for the Pilbara um, east coast. 
Uh, we've got a fire weather warning for the Swan Inland North, the Geograph, the Lockwood and the Row fire weather districts. Um, we've got a flood warning also um, for the uh, Nullagain and Coongan rivers. And that's it. Okay, so quite an extensive <laughs> list yeah. this afternoon. Thank you for going through the details, Joey. Thanks. It is 23 to 1 now. Let's have a look at the rainfall figures, looking back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking 5 mils and over, starting in northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Anna Plains 25, Broome Airport 7, Columbaroo 6, Mandora 63, Theta 20, Udiella 28, Winjana Gorge 11 millimetres and Yampi Sound 25. In the Pilbara, Bonnie Downs 20, Kulawanya 63, Indy 5, Karajini North 14, Marble Bar 65, Mount Florence 24, Mount Stewart 65, Newman Aero 10, Parabadu Aero 12, Pardu 36, Red Hill 7 and Yarry had 50. And no rain over 5 millimetres anywhere across the southwest land division. ABC Local Radio, Harvest Ban Information. And due to the risk of fire, the following local authorities have imposed a ban on harvesting and the use of any equipment, including vehicles, that could potentially start a fire. So those local authorities are Corrigan, Meriden, Narrambeen, Nungarran, Pingerley, Training and Yilgarn. If you want some more detailed information, including zones and the lifting of harvest bans, the best place to contact is your local government. 22 to 1, off to Mouche shortly to get the results of today's sheep market. Terry Birkin will have those details for you. First, though, Global Asparagopsis Production Company, CH4 has struck a deal with a large feedlot in southern New South Wales to supply it with seaweed to help the feedlot reduce its methane emissions. Ravensworth worth, Ravensworth has 40,000 head of cattle and CH4 has production facilities in South Australia and also offices in the US, New Zealand and Australia. CH4 General Manager here in Australia, Adam Main, says it's the start of a long-term relationship. We'll scale up with them as the supply of seaweed grows. So um, they have quite a number of head that we will, in a very short time frame, be looking to make all methane impact or uh, methane um, reduced or reduction in. But, uh, yeah, the, the partnership begins in 2023 and we grow from there. And where are you growing the asparagopsis? So at the moment, we're growing asparagopsis in both Australia and New Zealand. We have the ability to utilise uh, material generated from both. So we've gone through all the necessary process to uh, be able to use local material from Australia, but also import high-grade material as well from New Zealand to meet the offtake agreements like with uh, Ravensworth. So are you farming the ocean or have you got sort of aquaculture projects running? Yeah, no, it's, it's pure aquaculture. We grow everything that we sell. So it's not a seaweed harvesting company. We're an aquaculture company. So the way that we grow the seaweed is both at sea and on land. 
both of those technologies are, are still developing and um, we see that there's uh, room to gain in uh, both farming in the, the marine space out in the ocean but also definitely in the land space uh, where we do that in tanks and ponds on land. So as a company, we've taken on quite an aggressive approach to scaling up this technology and we're investing in, in both options. How do you get it from your production site to the feedlot in, as far as Ravensworth goes, for example? Yeah, so the seaweed is a natural product from the beginning right through to the end. There's not much that we have to do to the seaweed once we harvest it from either the marine or the land. We have to dry it, and you've got to dry it in a certain way, and that's something we've been doing uh, work on for the last couple of years. Once dried, we formulate it quite simply into a, a finished product. That finished finished product goes into uh, bags that goes and gets shipped off to Ravensworth. So as much as we've spent the last couple of years looking at how to scale up the technology, we've also been looking and working with partners like Ravensworth um, in regards to how is it going to be used at the by the end user, by, at the feedlot end. So we haven't gone down the path of making a technology that requires the feedlotter or the farmer to change their business practices by any means. So that's been just as important as learning as much about the seaweed as we can, but also how we're actually going to get that into the trough for the cows to eat uh, a dose of it every day. And so how much will you need? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is just dried seaweed in bags that can be mixed with the other food, yeah? Yep. So basically, a feedlot farmer runs a really tight process in regards to sourcing high-quality materials. It's a mixed blend of all sorts of wonderful things that the cows like eating. And a cow, a normal cow, in any given day would eat somewhere between 12 and 14 kilos of feed. All we need to add to that uh, mix is 50 grams. 50 grams of seaweed to a 14-kilo feed for a cow a day is enough to turn the methane off to a level around 90% reduction in methane. So what percentage of of cattle in feedlots now would be getting asparagopsis or some kind of uh, feed to reduce emissions, do you reckon? Oh, low, low now. 1% or something? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, very low in 2022. In 2023, we're absolutely starting to get into counting percentages. So without sort of, you know, overstepping, we're we're aggressively looking at having 20,000 head at some point in 2023. But that is then scaled up. It doesn't go up by the tens or the hundreds. It goes up by the thousands as the industry scales up. And it's people like Ravensworth, the early movers, that will get the advantages. And um, I think that Ravensworth as a mature feedlotting company are seeing that opportunity both in the domestic and the international market for the export market. So it's a pleasure to work with those companies that are, that are keen to explore this technology right at the get-go. Adam Main from CH4, that is a global asparagopsis production company, and he was speaking to David Clawton. 17 to 1. Well, that big feedlot in New South Wales isn't the only company exploring ways to reduce their carbon emissions. Munro Hardy is a cattle producer based at Catherine in the Northern Territory, and he's working on developing his own low emissions livestock feeds. He says it is early days, but the project has huge potential. Carbine Park is a bit of a trial for us. We're starting a program here where we're integrating with uh, the National Feed Co, uh, the pellet mill in Catherine. So we're growing hay here that's going to be supplying the mill. And I'm now, as we're growing, I'm, I'm trying to baseline all our measurements. So we'll look at soil testing and carbon loads in the soil. And then over time, through the years, we'll look at improving that, our soil health, 
microbiology and, and carbon we'll start to monitor and measure along the way. And then with the feed mill, we're looking at producing a pellet that is going to be sort of reduced carbon footprint pellet, so helping growers to reduce their emissions and, and buy, I guess, from accredited and certified producers like ourselves who are making an impact and trying to reduce their carbon footprint. So we're looking at three angles of that. We're looking to buy local for a start, which we've always done with, with hay, but the rest of our ingredients as well, if we can grow that locally, then we're eliminating freight from our supply chain and, and carbon footprint. Secondly, we're looking at efficiencies in growth in our cattle. So, you know, if we're looking at, at weaning programs, early weaning programs and early nutrition through to finishing programs, if we can eliminate the time to turn off, we can measure the difference in methane emissions between an animal turned off at 600 days compared to a benchmark of 700 days, for example. So there's 100 days less methane being emitted. And then the third part to it is adding a product to our pellet that actually changes the gut to reduce the methane emissions from an animal during the period that they're eating our pellets. So we can obviously measure how much methane we're saving from the time that they're going through that feeding program. An additive, is that something like an, an asparagopsis? Or? Yeah, correct, absolutely. We're looking at asparagopsis, among a few others, uh, just to see which product's going to be best suited to us and, and this environment in the north. And by implementing you know, all these things, how much do you think you could reduce your carbon footprint here? Well, that's a very good question, a tough one to answer, but you know, at the moment we're going through a, a benchmarking phase, so we need to start with a benchmark for our operations, work out our whole supply chain of what our emissions would be, including freight from interstate, but then look at changes over time in our farming operations and in our milling and processing operations as well. But I mean, optimistically, we'd, potentially we could reduce our footprint by 50%. Yeah, right. And what's, what's driving this for you? Is it economics? Is it social pressures? What's, what's the main driver in terms of this push for you? Well, for me, I suppose it's, it's driving change in the industry and, and creating efficiencies and, and just making or pushing the industry forward as much as we can in any aspect we can. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do that here where a lot of people can benefit throughout the supply chain, right up and down the supply chain, from growers, producers, right through to live exporters, people in quarantine yards. We can use it the whole way through. Who else do you think can benefit from this work that you're doing? Well, firstly, I think producers definitely. You know, they can create efficiencies through, through weight gains of their cattle and, and turn cattle off earlier, which means they can run more mouths on the grass that they've got. We're seeing people now who are selling their cattle ex-depot or ex-yards, ex so they're going through a feeding program in the yards, and some people are picking up 30 kilos a head on their animals, so there's, there's big margins in, in some of these feeding programs. So I think definitely producers can pick up a lot there, but certainly exporters along the way as well. And then I think another angle for producers too, if, if we've got this data and we can demonstrate uh, what we're doing to reduce our impacts, then you know, we, can, we can access capital, we can improve our social licence as an industry across the north. As you said, you're, you're benchmarking at the moment and, and this is the start of the process, but when do you think you'll have some good data around what you're doing? Yeah, well, I, I guess we get through this um, this growing season first. We'll cut our hay, and then you know every every three months we'll be soil sampling. So we've we've done our initial samples before we seed it. We're doing a, a couple of trials as well through NT Farmers and the NT NRM um, with composting trials 
on our pivot here and, and we'll try and work out what's giving us the best results on our country. Then uh, through our feedlot, we've got a mountain of, of manure that we can use to compost ourselves. And, and once we work out what works well, we'll start to utilise that a bit more on our growing country. And so I think we'll have varied results for a long time. And to get a, a clearer picture, I think will take a couple of years before we, we really understand what's, what's happening in the soil and, and through the supply chain as well. I think once we get through our hay season here, we'll be able to have our processing supply chain benchmarked. But then our growing, I think, is, is going to take a couple of years to, to work that out. Munro Hardy is from Mutual Food and Fibre. He was speaking to Max Rowley. And there is quite a bit going on in this space at the moment, isn't there? I mean, just yesterday you heard here on the Country Hour that billionaire, the founder of Microsoft, Bill Gates, has invested in local Perth startup company Ruminate to develop a, a supplement that's going to be fed to livestock to reduce methane emissions. So a lot of people are working away in the background to sort of make this happen. 11 minutes to one. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. To Mushay shortly for the results of the sheep market. Firstly, though, a man in his 30s has been injured in a workplace accident this morning near Yerricoin, about two hours northeast of Perth. This is in the wheat belt. It's understood the man was trapped in hay baling equipment and suffered lower body injuries. He was flown to Royal Perth Hospital and is in a serious condition. The Department of Fire and Emergency Services says several crews were called to the accident and WorkSafe is now investigating. Ten to one. Well, um, a Brahmin breeder and his wife have thanked friends and their community for an outpouring of support after he was knocked to the ground by a young bull and then trampled by panicked cattle. Stuart Volmerhausen is at home now at Thebine in Queensland, where he's on the mend but still hobbled by his injuries. Jennifer Nichols has the details. Sore and still on crutches after being knocked to the ground, then trampled by seven young bulls, Stuart Volmerhauser remains adamant that people shouldn't blame the Brahmin breed for what was just bad luck. Don't blame the breed. Yeah, it happens in every breed. You'll always get a little bit of crap. And probably people don't talk about it much. I was unlucky. <laughs> the co-owner of Rockstar Brahmin Stud at Thebine, north of Gympie in Queensland, prides himself on breeding quality cattle with excellent temperament. So being airlifted to hospital with a broken rib, a nasty hoof cut to the head and a badly bruised knee was a shock that he and his wife Linda are still recovering from. I can remember just looking up and I could see dirt and blood dripping down all over my eyes so I knew I wasn't in a good place. Yeah. The last few months had already been challenging for the popular and experienced cattle breeder who underwent surgery for prostate cancer in December. The 59-year-old's accident occurred just eight days later on the 2nd of January, the very day he returned to work. He was drafting young bulls in the yard when a feisty 350-kilogram wiener bull unexpectedly charged him from behind, knocking him down 
and spooking six other animals who panicked and ran over him. He was destined to be cold. He was always nervous as a calf and didn't settle down, so that's why he was being drafted off to be left behind, but he didn't appreciate it. Hmm, so. But it does happen. Some genetics, an odd one will turn up and in any breed. Yeah, and we, you know, like I said, we pride ourselves in temperament and quality of our Brahmin, so it's, yeah, we, it, we just eradicate it straight away and discontinue breeding that line of cattle and go something different, yeah. Stuart's wife Linda raced to the cattle yards fearing the worst after receiving the news that her husband had been seriously injured. Oh, he wasn't good. He wasn't good. He had, he had blood everywhere and his knee was like a football and he wasn't in a good way. How worried were you at the time? Oh, I, yeah, very. When I did get to the hospital, I saw the pain he was in and I all but went over fainted <laughs> luckily there was a doctor there <laughs> i was lucky a lot of my injuries weren't what they thought they might have been i had some two days they thought i might have had a bit of spinal injury down the bottom I, but it's yeah it's just nothing that's the only problem is the knee and it's just because it's been trod on that's it it's it you know the feet do damage to you that's what makes you bleed inside, yeah. An outpouring of community support has lifted the family's spirits at an extremely stressful time. The phone didn't stop with offers to help, anything we needed done. People around here and everyone we know, they're just amazing. They are amazing. One lady in particular, she turned up here with 16 pre-cooked meals for us so we didn't have to worry. Just beautiful people, beautiful people. Another sobering reminder of the dangers that come with working around animals, the couple's vet, Dr Damien Smith, wrote on Mary River Veterinary Services' Facebook page. Stuart has always been super cautious when it comes to safety around bulls, but when it comes to animals, accidents can happen, even with the most experienced. If you handle cattle every day, and we do it every day, seven days a week, eventually something will trick you up and I did not expect it I don't think there's anything I could do differently we don't stir our cattle up I've got Linda and my daughter and, and my mum's always around the yard so we don't have any cattle that are, are shitty encouraged by friends the couple began breeding stud Brahmins in 2018 with a focus on quality rather than quantity we've got a good friend Roy Sommerfeld and and the rest of my bra rock Brahmins we've been mates for years and like he started us he said you need a couple of these grey Brahmins because we were raring some yeah and he tricks you into a world that you can't get out of <laughs> what do you like about grey Brahmins oh, I don't know if someone will pay a bit of money for what you bred that's a good thing I'm happy to see it go somewhere and hopefully it does a job for them and they can do good and they'll say well we bought that from Rockstar years ago so that's what we hope yeah their hard work has been rewarded, with one customer paying $43,000 for a nine-month-old heifer last year. But that's a far cry, you were telling me, when you bought oh. this property we're sitting on today, that you went through drought and you were selling animals for a pittance. Yeah, $270 for wiener calves, and they had tough times, and, you know, it can rock back that way too sometimes, but take advantage when it's good that's where the stud world and and doing what we're doing we sort of hope we can keep our value up in our cattle man. and we love what we do actually if i didn't need the money i'd be happy just to breed them and look at them because if you get a great grey brahmin heifer bull it, it is something special yeah
Stuart and Linda Volmerhausen from Rockstar Brahman Stud at Thebine in Queensland, catching up with Jennifer Nichols. And a pretty um, lucky escape, really, by the sounds of things. I mean, he is a bit battered and bruised, and he's got that knee that's still troubling him after he was um, knocked to the ground by a young bull and then trampled by some other sort of panicked cattle that were around on the, on the scene at the time. Uh, hopefully that knee gets better and Stuart's up and about ASAP. It is three minutes to one and you are off to Mushe now for the results of today's sheep market. The total yarding today was 4,693 head, so that's sheep and lambs, and that is down 3,063 from last week's sale. Terry Birkin, hello. A little lighter this week by the sounds. Hi, Belinda. Yes, a lighter sale from last week, just over 3,000 less sheep. Lambs were less available but held up well price-wise with another processor coming back into the market. The pen of 12 exceptional lambs realised $180, while trade weight lambs held firm. A few fresh faces in the restock of buyers were coonie chasing crossbred and dorpid ewes and lambs, but smaller frame like merino stores were harder to sell. Well-presented lines of merino ewes were on offer and held firm, with restockers and processors bidding actively. So store lambs made from $10 to $69, while light lambs were selling from $65 to $145 a head. Trade lambs returned $109 to $155 and heavy lambs sold it to $180 a head. Lightweight ram lambs were selling from $10 to $100 while heavy ram lambs realised $144 a head. Heavy weather sold to $110. Merino weather hoggets were making $73 to $95 while Merino new hoggets returned $55 to $110 with a fleece. Crossbred hoggets sold to $151 while younger rams were selling to $100 and mature rams up to $76 a head. Bony ewes returned $10 to $80, medium ewes were selling up to $81, and heavy ewes making $87 to $95 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Uh, Thank you, Terry. Thank you for going through those details. And tomorrow, more sheep and lambs going under the hammer. And the market heads to Katanning. Tracy Kilner will be here tomorrow to go through the yarding and the prices for you. It's a minute away from the news at one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. A crime wave in Alice Springs attracts the attention of the Prime Minister as locals call for more resources to stop the alcohol fueled violence. Shocking numbers of abuse and neglect, a lack of trained staff blamed for systemic problems in the aged care system. And more councils opt out of Australia Day. What is the future for January the 26th as debate intensifies? Those stories are more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. Just repeating the top story today that one of the biggest players in the WA fertiliser market, that is CSBP, says that it's really keen to sort of pass on any cost reductions in fertiliser prices just to ensure that farmers are making really good economic decisions and buying what they need, those volumes of fertiliser uh, for this year's season ahead. You can listen to it again on the ABC Listen app or download it on the website.